Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other, where we get to talk to all kinds of interesting folks of goodwill and good faith about all kinds of interesting stuff. And if you dig that kind of thing, consider becoming a subscriber through Patreon to support what we're doing here and join our community. Become a part of the conversation, and we'll have more information about that in the coming weeks. I am your host, and I am so pleased to welcome our guest, Matt Lewis. Matt is a senior columnist for The Daily Beast, and his work has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, GQ, The Washington Post, and a diverse array of other publications from across the spectrum. He previously served as senior contributor for The Daily Caller, and before that, as a columnist for AOL's Politics Daily. He also dissects the day's issues and conversations with other thinkers, authors, and newsmakers on his podcast, Matt Lewis and the News. You can also see Matt as a regular contributor on MSNBC, CNN, C-SPAN, PBS NewsHour, ABC's Nightline, HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, and CBS News' Face the Nation. And Matt's 2016 book, Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Went from the Party of Reagan to the Party of Trump, is a really enlightening read. Matt K. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. This is a real treat for me, especially since the last time we talked. I've just been diving into old columns, uh, your book, obviously, the collection you edited. But I want to start at the beginning. I'm imagining... A, a young Matt Lewis growing up in rural Western Maryland. And when little Matt did something naughty, got in trouble, did your dad ever roll out with, what we have here is a failure <laughs> to communicate? <laughs> uh, I don't think my parents ever saw that movie. Okay. They would have viewed that movie as as liberal Hollywood, you know, <laughs> atheist Hollywood. Um, but, but they very well might have had that accent. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in all seriousness, I, I would love for you to give us a little background about your family, where you grew up and, and some of those formative experiences. Yeah. So I'm from Western Maryland between Frederick and Hagerstown, Maryland. And my mom was was a my mom was like a, a she was a homemaker for for a while. She was a babysitter for a while. And amazingly, she actually um, edited books. It was like a proofreader like a like a proofreader at, at Doubleday Book Company in Smithsburg, Maryland, of all places. Maybe that's where I get the writing thing from, my mom. My dad was a prison guard for about 30 years in Hagerstown, Maryland. He was a big, tough dude from the country, but he also was a dreamer. He's the guy, he, he paid me to read Dale Carnegie books when I was little. And and he was also, a, I think that came from him, he was also a life insurance salesman. Oh. So he sold life insurance on the side. And he, of course, he also sold Amway too. And, you know, at some point that that fizzled. 
But I, I think all those things, you know, combine and, you know, make you who you are, all those experiences. And one of my first memories is my dad taking me to the polls in like 1980. And it was my elementary school, Wolfsville Elementary uh, in Maryland, to vote for Ronald Reagan for the first time. And that's one of my first memories. So, uh, yeah, it's it's no matter how old <laughs> you get, those things really have lasting importance. That's funny you mentioned that because I one of my earliest memories, we still lived in New York City and uh, it was the 76. I'm probably about four or five years older than you. And it was the 76 election. And we went walked across the street to PS 19. My dad took me inside the those curtains and that, you know, and uh, he voted for Jimmy Carter that year. So that, you know, differences. I think in how my we... mom liked, I think my mom kind of liked Jimmy Carter. Yeah. But I, I think she, I think she voted Reagan too. But, but, you know, Carter was, you know, people forget, but, but Carter was sort of conservative. He was a Christian. He was a Southerner. And so I think that it, certainly in 76, Carter had, there was a lot of hope in Carter yeah, uh, that maybe by by the time 1980 rolled around, some people had had abandoned. Well, one of the things I really appreciated about Too Dumb to Fail is that whole section where you track with the conservative movement and how it evolved. And one of those parts was when there were longtime Democrats that were kind of switching over to Republicans, and that was a pretty critical time, the late 70s into the early 80s, when when uh, Reagan finally consolidated a lot of that that block or before that you also talk about the uh, the southern strategy yeah. but i had another question about your your youth i came across this song i can survive because of you <laughs> now i were you guys going for a whole blues traveler vibe because that the the harmonica the wow. singer even sounds like john parker you have Is that done you have done your research <laughs> i have been <laughs> i've been doing this for a long time and i don't think anyone has ever asked me about this before we weren't really necessarily going for blues traveler but i think we got there we had a blues harp player yeah named david lance who was phenomenal and uh we had a uh, a lead singer and rhythm guitar player uh, named george spiegel who was a great songwriter his brother mike spiegel was an amazing lead guitarist and then my cousin Ronnie ba Ronnie Bidel plays drums. Everyone could go listen to this on YouTube if they want. That song, the thing that makes that song, the reason I like that song is, um, I was normally the bass player in that band, but but in this particular song, I play the lead guitar, which is really like a faux steel guitar. Okay. So it's got a real twangy country sound, and and me and the harmonica player kind of twin and go back and forth taking turn playing lead so that's that's one of my favorite songs so inadvertently we did sound a lot like blues traveler though yeah yeah even even the the singer sounds a little bit like john popper i happened to grow up a couple towns away from those guys and they were when they were first coming into their own they were playing keg, you know high school keggers and then eventually the rutgers and princeton parties and it was really cool to see them advance and have a real influence but your heart player really nailed that that cross he's good thing. yeah we actually did i mean we, we played um run around the blues traveler song as a cover okay and i wish we would have done hook i love that song hook uh off that same album but it's a great jam yeah um so it, that was a really interesting time in my life and I, I wrote a piece later in the daily caller 
about how um, a lot of the stuff I learned playing in rock bands really applies to my life now in politics. Oh, okay. Which is weird, right? I was I always figured like my parents really thought that I was a loser, like living in their basement, <laughs> playing in bands, uh, doing God knows what, and they, they thought it would never come in handy. But it turns out it actually did. So what? How does adventures as a musician prepare you for your career as as a writer and uh, you know a commentator on politics? Some of it is just the writing, right? So like I was the the collaboration when you're in a rock band, you're like married to four dudes and you collaborate with writing. And honestly, that's what my writing is like now. Like my name may be on the byline, but it is a collaborative process, uh, both with my formal editors and with other people that I bring in uh, to help me, friends, writing buddies. And uh, the another thing is uh, the promotion. Like uh, when I first started playing music, I assumed the key was to be really good at music. You would like make a great demo tape where you sounded awesome. And then you would take it to like the best club or bar in town. They would hear the demo tape. They would hear how good you were. They would book you. And then you would get all these fans and you would slowly progress <laughs> up to bigger and better places. And what I learned was, no, it doesn't matter how good you are. The key is to have an audience. If you can bring a hundred friends, doesn't don't even have to be fans, like a hundred friends to drink at their restaurant or bar, <laughs> And so I started, you know, handing out flyers and 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 uh, building a mailing list and all those things, basically promoting the band are things now in some way I still am doing those same things on Twitter. Yeah. And the uh, I guess the last one uh, that I'll mention, at least here, is overcoming stage fright. You know, when you get up on stage and perform. It can be nerve wracking. And, and what I told myself was this thing called uh, Wabi Sabi, huh? which is <laughs> there's actually a, a King of the Hill episode about it. OK, uh, if, if you ever watched that that cartoon. Yeah. But Wabi Sabi is basically this. I guess it's like a Zen philosophy where like there are no bad notes. The bad notes are good notes. And I told myself that it was the key wasn't being perfect. It was about being authentic. And I could do that. And so if I made a, if I made a mistake, that's part of that's just fine, right? And when I started going on TV as a commentator, I adopted some of that same mental trick, those mental tricks, um, to allow myself to go on TV and not be too nervous about it. And so, as you could see, and I've only touched on like three of them, but a lot of that stuff that I was doing that my parents, I'm sure, thought was a waste of time, I was really, in a way, preparing for this life, this career that I, that I now have. You know, it's funny. I, I didn't think of it until you just kind of expounded on the relationship between your vocation now and your, your time as a, as a musician. But when I was first starting out as a young adult, I was a stockbroker during the day, but I was going to this theater conservatory at night. And I saw huge overlaps between two very, very different worlds. So the, the, the central idea behind method acting is basically uh, there's a lot of different iterations of it, especially especially in the States. But going back to Stanislavski, it was it starts with what is your objective? What is your goal, your character's goal objective? What's the action that your character 
is is implementing in order to achieve his objective? And what are the obstacles that are defined, sort of defining the actions? And in the same way, what I was learning on Wall Street, the, the beginnings of like uh, what I was learning about business plans is they're very much the same thing. Yeah. The, the SWAT plans, uh, strength, weakness, opportunity, threat. There's a lot of similarities there, but I digress a bit. <laughs> no, stay here for a second. Okay. I got a story and then, well, I got a story and then something else. So here's a funny story. So like the way that I, my big break getting on TV happened because I, um, I made friends with this, there was a driver who used to drive me back and forth to MSNBC and we would hang out and talk. Like while he was driving me, we, we became really good friends and I loaned him this book. It was Manhunt about the hunt for John Wilkes Booth. And he had it laying on his dash and, and uh, Joe Scarborough got in his car and said, hey, that's an interesting book. And the guy's like, yeah, Matt Lewis loaned that to me. You should have him on. So <laughs> so I made friends with these drivers and, and there was a different driver. And I'm not going to I'm not going to do the voice here. But I don't, if you ever watched that show from the 80s called Spencer for Hire. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. There was a guy named Hawk on that show who was okay. like a seven foot tall black man who was super tough. Yeah. That was my driver of the car. And I was talking to him one day, and this was right after Heath Ledger died. Okay. And I was telling him how like, um, I think maybe, you know, Heath Ledger was like really immersed in being the Joker and that it might've led him to go crazy. And I started talking to the driver and I was telling him like, um, do you know about what's what's the acting called that you were doing? Method acting. Method method acting, yeah. And I was like, "Have you ever heard of this?" And he was like, acted like he was unfamiliar with it. And then he, he goes, "Oh, you mean like Leo Strasberg?" Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable how smart and and well read. It was just amazing conversations we had. Yeah. But you know, I I remember hearing Tim Keller one time talk about he had someone come in, you know, being a preacher in New York City was was an interesting and, and challenging thing for him coming. I think he was coming from Virginia and he had someone come in and say, like, um, I'm an actor and I'm wondering if this conflicts with being a Christian. And Tim Keller was like, I don't, I don't think so. And then the guy said, well, I'm a method actor. And so I'm playing a murderer. And that means I'm basically going to be a murderer for the next year. Does that conflict with being a Christian? And Tim Keller actually never, I don't think, resolved the answer to that. But I, but I, but I found it to be a, uh, a really interesting conundrum. So let me ask you. I've been wondering about this for a long time. Sure. I imagine that if you are really committed to becoming somebody and they're a bad person, that that would impact your your life. You know, it's interesting. This never came up on this podcast yet, but I ran a what's called a, a theater and film ministry uh, for a, a pretty big uh, church here in, in Santa Clarita. And um, we ended up doing we, we were really just a more of a repertory company uh, and we would do classical theater. We sh shot some short films and as a ministry, as a Christian ministry, we often grappled with this stuff. I remember the first time, every once in a while, I would actually get up there on the boards. I was more of an artistic director and producer, but every once in a while, I'd get up there on the boards and we were doing um, Oscar Wilde's 
oh gosh, what was the name of that play? Um, the, not the importance, um, woman of no importance. And I played this real, he was a real cad. Uh, he was a fun character to play, but he, he did some awful things and, and really was just terribly manipulative to a destructive degree. That part didn't mess me up because I could simply, I could simply defer to the portrayal of the character and keep some separation there. But there are other, I think you just have to know yourself as an artist. You just have to know what your limitations are and take a breath. So for me, I have a little bit more of a proclivity. Uh, I'm, I'm a passionate romantic, you know? So, and, and not so coincidentally, it wasn't the portrayal of this cad of a character. It was the fact that one point he kissed uh, this uh, one of the main characters, the, the woman, and, and they actually kissed. That became much more of a scandal. The fact that these two actors playing characters that were members of the church actually kissed. I'm like, mm. are you kidding me? But on a serious note, I would have to if when I was studying, you know, once I once I was married and stuff and uh, Lisa and I were going together before that, I had to know what my limitations were. You know, I, I did um, Les Liaisons, uh, Dangerous Liaisons once. And that guy, uh, Vicomte de Valmont, he, he started getting into my, into my, into, it was messing with my head. So uh, to, to the extent that I was feeling um, feelings of attraction to the, one of the women that I was playing with, and I just had to know my limitations uh, and, and kind of back off in, but in is that of, method acting? Like if, if, if you're really committed to the method acting formula, like haven't you kind of given up the ability to? No, no. There, there's no. this great, um, there's a great moment between uh, Lawrence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman. And uh, it, it was for that, uh, I forgot the name of the movie where, where um, Olivier is playing the dentist and he's torturing Hoffman and Hoffman prepared for it. He's a Strasbourg student he prepared for it by like starving himself for three days and running around the building 10 times to tire himself out. And he comes in and he's all distraught and sweating. And he, you know, and uh, you know, Olivier, Olivier asked, what's wrong with you? you? Look terrible. And he says what he was doing to prepare for the scene where he's about to get tortured. And Olivier's response was my boy, why don't you try acting? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I, I do think that there is um I think that Strasbourg school and a lot of actors that went through that training, they tended to go down that road a little bit more where it was, they took things a little bit too literally. I studied a little bit more with um, uh, Stella Adler's technique and, and Meisner. There was a great rift between those guys who started out with the group theater and Stella was much more about the imagination. So, you know, guys like Brando, uh, Robert Duvall, Robert De Niro, um, they, I think they didn't have some of those um, frailties, if you will, that people like uh, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, uh, Monty Clift. Uh, I, I do think that if you track with their lives, the acting met, messed them up even more in, in a way. So uh, I, I didn't expect that we'd be talking about this. <laughs> um, That's the mark of a good conversation. Oh, OK. All right. Fair enough. So. I did want to ask you one of the things, again, I, I really loved Too Dumb to Fail. It wasn't what I was expecting. It was much more of a, an, 
dare I say, an academic treatise. And I, I got quite an education on the conservative movement going back to Aristotle. So not that you could do this in 30 seconds or less, but I, I was hoping that you could give us a um, give us a bit of that history, the formation of conservative thought that you tracked from Aristotle, I think, to Burke, and then on forward into the 20, 20th century iterations. And uh, if you could give us a little bit of that background. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm prepped to do that. I wrote <laughs> this book in January. The book came out in January of 2016, which means I wrote it in 2015. Um, first, let me just say the premise of the book is that conservatism is a, a serious and thoughtful philosophy, and I believe that it's actually the best for human flourishing. And then my premise is that that the, the Republican Party, who in America is, is the home of conservatism, the political home of conservatism, over time became corrupted and, 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 and went down the wrong path. And, but I felt like I couldn't just start there. It was important to establish the premise that conservatism actually was a, a serious philosophy um, and to sort of explain the history of how this happened. Because you've, you hear people all the time say, you know, Donald Trump is a symptom of the problem. Yeah. And I actually believe that's true. But the problem didn't start in 2012 either. And, and, and so um, I kind of went through you noted I sort of start with Aristotle, but I think Edmund Burke is the person I look to as sort of the, the leader of quote unquote modern, modern conservatism. And I really, you know, I looked to several different books that I wanted to uh, kind of help popularize as I told this story. And one of them is a book by Yuval Levin okay. uh, about Edmund Burke versus Thomas Paine. And, and I talk about these differing worldviews and, and how, you know, Burke's worldview is essentially that we live in a fallen world and that that man is fallen, but that we have been able to, over time, slowly build civilization and that it's a it's precious and it's tenuous. And, you know, Paine's worldview was different. He believed that we could begin the world over again. And that leads you down the road to things like a belief in the perfectibility of man. And so if you want to look at some of the worldview differences between the right and the left, you know, Levin, Yuval Levin says, look to Paine and Burke. So like, that's an example of one of the things that I, that I start with, starting with Edmund Burke, talking about those philosophical differences. And then I bring it all the way up until to modern times. Um, I spend a good bit of time on Ronald Reagan along the way. Yeah. He is somebody that I think was actually a very good president and a good person and a good conservative. And that's one of the things that makes me different from some of the people who critique the right. For a lot of them, the last good Republican, if there ever was one, was Dwight Eisenhower. Mm. And so you end up with a lot of the criticisms of the right are really progressives who never really liked conservatism. And so I think one of the things that made this book unique, and, and by the way, I mean, I wrote this before. Uh, there have been subsequent books. People like Charlie Sykes, for example, uh, wrote a book about like where the right went wrong kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. But I think my book was was kind of, you know, maybe the first attempt, at least in, in the Trump era, to write that kind of book and to tell that story. And to be honest, I, I, I'm really proud of it. I think it's really held up 
held up well. And it was great because I'm a columnist and I write all these 750 word columns about what's happening right this minute. Yeah, It was really fun to get to go a little deeper and to talk about ideas and history and philosophy a little more than I do on, a, on an average day. Well, it was interesting to look at that and, and understand that it was, you know, it was published early in 2016, paperback coming out, not until uh, spring of, of that year. So I knew that you were writing it in 2015. But some of what you discussed, I forget if it was, so some of the stuff was in the book, but some of it was in uh, columns that you were writing at that time. But how on the money some of those things were. For example, you were taking Donald Trump much more seriously as a, as a possibility, not only to win the nomination, but to win the election. And specifically, I think it was, again, it might have been in a column that you wrote at about the same time, but you specifically said the three states because of the Rust Belt and the, and, yeah. and you know, that he was speaking uniquely to a population yeah. that could swing Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Uh, but there are some other things that I think you might have been, might have been off base. Uh, so, well, I mean, and one thing is, I, I one more place where I was clearly off base is I thought Trump would lose the general election, even though I was cautioning people like, hey, he might win. He's got a better chance than you think. Yeah. At the end of the day, if push came to shove and I was forced to bet, I thought Hillary would probably win. I just didn't think I didn't think people took Trump seriously enough. But I also thought, you know, I just don't know how. Trump wins. I don't know how Trump overcomes Philadelphia, yeah. for example. I just think, you know, Pennsylvania is always fool's gold. Yeah. You know, Republicans always think they're going to win Pennsylvania. There's this Philadelphia machine. Like, I just don't see it. And and that so I ended up being ultimately wrong about that. But I think um, uh, I was probably, why don't you go ahead? Because I'm sure I was wrong about a lot, a lot of other stuff, too. No, no. You know, it's more of a larger conversation. Uh, and it's actually one of the things that you address in the book is, can the conservative movement reckon with where we've gotten it wrong? And I'm, I, 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 your description of conservative thought, I very much identify with, but I hadn't heard it. You know, before I started this project and reading uh, Charlie Sykes' book or, or Bill Crystal's parents' essays from you know, the late 40s and into the 50s, I knew that I had some conservative, some issues where I fell more conservative, but from a philosophical standpoint, it just made a heck of a lot more sense. But I'll, I'll give you one specific thing. Uh, I think your wife does a fundraiser in Paul Weirich's name, mm -hmm. uh, right? Yep. Do I have that? So- Yeah, uh, still does. Interestingly, just last week, I had a conversation with someone, great scholar, uh, theologian, uh, who, you would probably identify as, as very, very progressive. And in one of her books, uh, she tracks with Paul Weirich's association with Jerry Falwell, Bob Jones Jr., and how the moral majority was actually a direct outworking of, of Bob Jones Jr.'s, in particular, segregationist tendencies. Uh, so I was going to ask you about that, but more broadly, like, is the conservative movement able to reckon with where we've gotten it wrong? And you in particular, you know, um, for, for example, your collection of, of Sarah Palin's, you know, what, what she said in public and speeches and stuff like that, you know, it, a specific issue like that, how you've evolved on your view of certain uh, leaders or certain ideas reckoned with where you in particular have gotten it wrong. Yeah. So I would say that generally speaking, I have not changed, generally speaking, but that 
everybody else has. You're going with Reagan right now, aren't you? (laughs) It is kind of like Reagan. You know, I didn't leave the party. They left me. Yeah. It's basically basically what has happened. I, I think that, you know, for example, let's say like Russia would be an example of where like I still don't like Putin. I still don't trust Putin. The Republican Party last, you know, when I was a kid was very tough on Russia. And now that has changed. Well, I haven't changed. They have changed. And that's like just one of many examples. Um, having said that, you know, through, you can't be in this business where you're like putting out opinions and, and all the time and not get some things wrong. And I think like Sarah Palin in general is something that I got wrong. Mm. So I was a big booster of Palin's back in 2008. Like I thought it was great that McCain picked her. And I, I'm i not too hard on myself because I still understand why he picked her. Yeah. And I will say, you know, she was great when he announced her. She gave a great speech at the convention and she held her own in a debate against Joe Biden. So if you had told me like she's going to do those three things, we're going to pick a, a running mate who's going to have a great rollout, give a great speech at the convention and, you know, do well during the debate. I would have said, OK, that's a win. I think that Palin ended up becoming really radicalized. And then I think the question is whether was she always a flawed vessel or was she just thrown in the deep end too quickly and and became radicalized by the media scrutiny, which I do think was unfair. And I think I've come to the conclusion that both things are true. I think that it might have been possible for Palin to have been mentored and brought along slowly and to have matured into a better uh, public servant, like in a different environment, maybe she would have gone from being governor of Alaska to being a U.S. senator, and she might have been fine. However, uh, it is clear to me that that she had character flaws and deficiencies, and that and that she was very and what indicative of the right, the populist right these days. And so I think that was an area where I was like rooting on this person that ended up becoming kind of the forerunner to Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. She was such a symbol of what was happening at that moment. And again, she was a reflection of what was already happening for several years. Now, it was cool to go through that collection because to be it was clarifying. You know, when, when you read things in their context that she said, uh, whether it was interviews or speeches, she it made more sense. And she actually had a decently thought out point of view on anything from gay marriage to abortion, tax, foreign policy, you know, and and she wasn't, everybody knows she wasn't always fairly treated or even accurately represented what she said. But I, I would say that a lot of folks that I really love and respect were big fans of hers, but they had to overlook certain primary qualities of hers and, and, and the qu- primary impacts that she was having or exacerbating. And, and to me, what I... I was really intrigued when they first announced her because I love the idea, number one, of a, a, a woman on a the big ticket, uh, but number two, specifically, a woman who bucked her own party in her own state with executive experience. So that stuff on the back of her baseball card was appealing to yeah. me, but literally within a, a few minutes, the first time I heard her speak, what, what I was hearing was specifically how she was engaging. 
she couldn't she couldn't utter one sentence without basically demonizing anyone who was associated with quote unquote the other side and i thought that, that that's just a and, and now that's just a, you know, Donald Trump obviously took that to a yeah. whole other level. Everything is, if you're not with us, you're against us, you're the enemy, and everything is through the prism of a fight, and we got to defeat you. And that's how you can, that's how I think a lot of folks can justify, people I go to church with can justify someone who, like Trump, who embodies the exact opposite of the fruit of the spirit, you know? Another area where the parties left me, I mean. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Uh, no, with, with Palin, I've. I mean, I, this is all, you know, looking back and probably rash, having rationalized it. But but my my thinking was, OK, so she's going to balance the ticket. You've got John McCain, who's the statesman. He's obviously going to be at the top of the ticket. So Palin will come in. And traditionally, the role of the running mate and, and the vice president has been to be a bit of an attack dog. I mean, that's not a that sort of was the role. And and. And John McCain could be above the fray and Palin could be in there mixing it up, uh, that they would compliment each other and that some of this was shtick. Yeah. But in hindsight, you know, looking back, there, so I don't know if you know uh, Kathleen Parker, the Washington oh, Post. Oh, I love her. The Washington Post. Yeah. Love her. Yeah. So I used to criticize her a lot because she was at the Washington Post at the time and fairly early on, she wrote a column basically saying like, you know, Palin, McCain should drop her from the ticket. Yeah. And I saw that as, you know, apostasy, as just a stab in the back from someone who ought to be on our quote unquote team. And in hindsight, I've looked at it and, and thought, well, that was really unfair of me that, you know, Kathleen perhaps saw something in Palin that I that I didn't see at the time. Yeah. There were a number of then pure conservative writers and thinkers, most of whom now are like ostracized from the the Republican fold as we know it now. But, you know, uh, I, I was going to ask you about that. So you, we have a wide array of folks like uh, David French, Jonah Goldberg, Peggy Noonan, George Will or, or, or elected Liz Cheney, uh, Adam Kinzinger. I wonder if if the cancer of Trumpism is fatal to the conservative movement or or the Republican Party or ha have the weeds so overtaken the wheat that there, there really is no separating them at this point. You accounted for one moment when uh, William F. Buckley was able to evolve on uh, civil rights. And then he so he also had the credibility to call out the John Birch Society yeah. uh, when he had to. I wonder if there's any going back, if there's any William F. Buckley who can say, look, this is this is not us. This is not conservative. Is there any retrieving any of that? I, so I think if if there was one person who might have been able to do it, I think it would have been Rush Limbaugh. Mm. And he chose not to do it. In fact, he did the opposite. The problem, though, is that there is technology has changed so in other words bill buckley wasn't just able to call out the toxic forces on the right not just solely by virtue of his like moral authority but also by virtue of the fact that he had a printing press you know you couldn't just start a magazine it was hard i mean you could but you probably had to have like millions of dollars and so 
the masses out there could not compete with Buckley and his magazine. And he was a gatekeeper. He could effectively shut people out. If you know what, go to human events. I don't know. There were like two or three places you could have gone if you wanted to be a prominent conservative, start a newsletter like Phyllis Schlafly or something, maybe. But nowadays, everyone, anyone can get the word out. And so the dynamic has changed. So it is incredibly hard for any one leader to kind of say, okay, this stops now. We're not doing this now. And again, I think it might have been possible if at the right moment, Rush Limbaugh had done it. He didn't do it. And, and it might not have even worked for him. He might have just become obsolete and irrelevant. I mean, that's how powerful this force is. But technology, I think, has, has really made it difficult. That's an interesting point. I didn't think of it that way. For as powerful and influential someone like Tucker Carlson, who I want to ask you about in a second, seem their percentage of market share is considerably less than folks in the past. You know, so oh, yeah. his his viewership is in the single digit millions, uh, whereas others might have garnered a much higher percentage of, say, you know, conservative uh, readers like uh, Buckley did. So I, I did want to ask you about about Tucker. Uh, so you worked for The Daily Caller, uh, which was uh, co-founded by, by Tucker Carlson. And, and I think just as pretty recently, you still would consider him a friend, I heard you say. I was curious if the Tucker Carlson we see on TV every night, the Tucker Carlson who made the, this, uh, what was it called? Pa Patriot Purge. You know, yeah. this uh, documentary supposedly about, um, well, it's been you know, widely discussed, but is he, is that just the character he's playing on TV or, or is it like a Jekyll and Hyde thing? He's permanently turned into this other Mr. Hyde. I wish I could give you more insight. It was, it's funny. I just, about a month ago, I went to this meeting with a whole bunch of prominent, like conservative writers and literally the biggest topic of conversation everywhere I went was what happened to Tucker Carlson? <laughs> and these are people who knew him even better than I did, uh, in, in some cases, who were more colleagues of his. I was an underling, although he never treated me like an underling. I mean, that's the thing about Tucker is when you worked for him, he, he treated you like you were the president of the company. You could be the lowliest intern, and he would treat you the same as he would anyone else. So like my personal experience with Tucker has was was fabulous. He was a great boss. And even when I was writing things, like, you know, too dumb to fail, I write in 2015. But I started working for Tucker, I think in January of 2011, something like that. So I had written these themes for like four or five years that became the book. Most of the stuff that became too dumb to fail were ideas that I had hashed out in columns and blog posts on the Daily Caller and other places. And Tucker paid me <laughs> to write things that go very much against what he believes and, and even believed back then. The one thing I can tell you is that he did not change to be more like Trump, that, that he was you know, when I was working for him as far back as 2011, he was much more populist and nationalist than I was. And and 
people think that he changed because like 25 years ago, he was like a libertarian and he was writing pieces for the Wall Street Journal saying we should have more immigrants. So he did change over time, but well before Trump came along, he had become much more populist and nationalist. I'm a little bit sad. Um, about a week ago, uh, a guy named John Ward, who um, John worked at the Daily Caller and literally left the week I came in and I took his office. So <laughs> I worked for six years in the office that had been his for like a year and a half or two years. And he worked uh, for Tucker at the Daily Caller and he just wrote a piece um, critical of the Patriot Purge for Yahoo. And Tucker did a, a segment on the show attacking him. And that really hurt me. And I was talking to some of my other friends and colleagues. We still stay in touch. And a lot of people are very upset and hurt because this is a really special work environment. Like we were very, it was very tight knit and very close. And there was a tremendous amount of, of friendship and respect there. Obviously it's the bigger story is like the impact that, that Tucker has on the country, but there's like a subplot <laughs> about, you know, people who used to work together at this place and, you know, who are grappling with whether they can continue to, uh, sh should they speak out publicly against them and that kind of thing. I've really tried to, um, in fact, I just wrote a piece the other day where I was critical, you know, critical of, of some of the things he's espousing, but really try not to make it personal because, again, I really like Tucker and I have to say, like, he was one of the best bosses I've ever had in my life. You know, I was I, I there was a column that you re wrote uh, about a week or so ago. Conservatives flying freak flags embrace being the villain. Yeah. And part of the part of what you were talking about. And, and I wonder if some folks just made a conscious decision like, no, this is now war. You describe an environment at, at the D.C., the Daily Caller, where you have folks of diverse range of opinions, yeah. folks who went on to Breitbart, folks who went on to more left-leaning publications, and all not just operating under the same roof, but really collaborating and, and having lively uh, dialogue with each other. Uh, but in this piece that, that you wrote uh, a week or so ago, you describe an environment that's very, very different. And, and I wonder yeah. if there are some folks who, again, just consciously made up their mind that this is war. And in war, all rules are have to be thrown out the window, you know? I think that's fundamentally what it is. I mean, I think that is exactly right. And I think you've put it very well. Once you buy into that analogy or that concept, then everything is justified. It's yeah. like the just war theory, you know? It's not murder if it happens on the battlefield. Well, if politics is the battlefield, then all's fair. Right, right. And that's how uh, good good Christians, quote unquote, yeah. can justify someone like Donald Trump, where <laughs> it's funny, I, I say sort of offhandedly, but it's pretty close to serious that I can open up pretty much any page of the Bible and it testifies against the words, actions yes. and character <laughs> of Donald John Trump. Yeah, I, I, it's been funny for me. I mean, I've been sitting in, you know, I've been sitting in a pew hearing, you know, preachers who support Trump preach and everything they're saying is against Donald Trump without yeah. saying his name. It's 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 a weird, weird thing.
Yeah, yeah. But again, it's justified. And his marketing, uh, part of his marketing strategy in 2020 was really effective. And it's something that I hear other politicians. I got a letter from our Congressman Mike Garcia, and he just basically adapted the same line, which was fighting for you. We are fighting for you. The fact that, you know, we're identifying a certain way and we feel like we're in a war and we need somebody to fight for us. That definitely resonates with a huge section of the populace. I just don't think it's reflective of reality. Yeah. And and, and I, I think some of that goes back to Andrew Breitbart. I mean, I remember like the, the war hashtag, for example. And Andrew Breitbart, someone, I don't know if you ever met him. I, I knew him a little bit. Really liked him. Very nice guy. But I think that he um, and, I, and he would not have liked Donald Trump, at least not initially. I'm confident of that. But he is someone who I think basically looked to, you know, the left and like Saul Alinsky and tried to ape the evil, horrible things they were doing and replicate it or learn from it, which is fine to learn from it. But but to mimic it. And I think that. um he, I don't want to say he's entirely responsible, but I think he was certainly part of pushing that war, politics is war mentality. And honestly, that's how you get civil war, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that is a civil war at some point. So a whole section of your book is really a prescription of how do we get out of this? I wonder if you were to write a follow-up to that book, how, what are some of the ways that you think, is there a way out of this or... Is it going to get a lot worse before it gets better? Or is it just too simple of a question to ask? It, it's just not that simple. But I guess the, the, the main question being, how, how do we find our way out of this? It is super complicated. And I would say a lot harder than when I wrote it. Like when I wrote it, it was hard to prescribe uh, a solution. And I think it would be much harder now, you know, five years later. I can just tell you what I've done or what I try to do is is not think about the problem from a global standpoint, but think about it as an individual and just try to, like, irrespective of what everybody else is saying, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to, you know, live this life. I'm going to stand for these principles and these values. And if, if, if enough people follow me, or replicate what I'm doing, then we will have a critical mass. I'll just say w one thing, and again, so th the hard part is this requires individuals making choices, but the first thing they ought to do is turn off cable TV. Oh, baby. <laughs> it's incredibly toxic. It's incredibly damaging. I basically watch, I watch a little Morning Joe, and I watch, if I can, I watch Special Report, and that's pretty much it. And I think that if, you know, if, if you're watching a lot of cable TV, that is not good for you or the country. Would you say the same thing about a lot of AM radio or XM radio now? Like uh, the Patriot Channel on XM or something like that? Oh, I'm sure. Uh, I just, it's not, I wasn't even thinking about it because I don't listen to much of it. I, I used to listen to Rush Limbaugh sometimes in the car just to kind of, for old times sake, I used to be a huge Rush fan. Um, my dad introduced me to Rush's show like in 1988. Wow. Okay. I used to listen all the time. And like, dude, there are times like if Rush Limbaugh had died like in 1990 or even 1998, maybe I would have 
really felt like a member of my family had died. It would have been devastating. Um, but I'm just a big podcast fan now. So yeah. I think yeah. that podcasting is, you know, knock on wood, I'm sure that the suits are going to find a way to pervert it and ruin the, the platform. But for now, I would say that podcasting is perhaps the only net positive technological development <laughs> in, the, in communications in, in, in the last decade. I mean, as much as I uh, love my iPhone, I would l love to throw it in the ocean if I could. <laughs> um, but I think that podcasting is, is really a net positive. And so I would, you know, but again, hey, it's garbage in, garbage out. If you're listening to like Steve Bannon's podcast all day long, yeah, like, you know, that's not necessarily a good thing. Well, my diet is definitely a lot of Matt Lewis in the news, uh, Ron Steslow's politicology, definitely the dispatch. And there's several uh, titles on the dispatch. Jonah has one of his own, the Good Faith podcast, as well as the main one. And then I've learned so much about the law and the yeah. conservative legal movement from the one that David and uh, Sarah Isger do together, uh, advisory opinions. And Charlie Sykes is uh, the bulwark. There's so much good stuff on there that's really intelligent commentary. Uh, intelligent conversations. But yeah, I mean, if your diet is more Dan Bongino than David French, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's the, the, the Isn't it amazing that we, that we used to be under the, um, under the same umbrella and the same movement that like we all used to, and, and some of the people used to like really happily coexist in the sense of like, I mean, not happily, but like Bill Crystal and Laura Ingram probably went to cocktail parties together. You know what I mean? That's just so did Hillary wrong. Clinton and Donald Trump. So. Yeah, that's true. But again, I used to work with Tucker. And so I mean, yeah. it's, it's um, that's what makes me wonder is because I know that a lot of folks had really healthy dialogue, but some folks chose this Trumpian road. And it's not just about Donald Trump. It's just the symbol of what it, it's all about, what it means in our culture. I did want before we we get we got to wrap up pretty soon here, but I did want to ask you before we wrap it up about your own conservative roots. So you mentioned being introduced to Rush Limbaugh by your dad um, in the late 80s. Was it was it Rush Limbaugh or or uh, you went to the Leadership Institute, I think? Yeah. What was how did you really form your your convictions as a conservative? How did you learn about the movement and, and begin to understand what it was all about? It was a long process. I was not an intellectual. I'm still not. But I mean, like, I started off listening to Rush Limbaugh, watching Family Ties with Alex P. Keaton, loving Ronald Reagan, and being like really just a in the gut conservative. You know, taxes are bad. We need to beat Russia. We need to have a strong national defense. We need law and order. My dad's a prison guard. So actually, the Matt Lewis, the young Matt Lewis, would have probably had an even better handle on Donald Trump. In fact, I wonder, my dad died in 2004, and my mom and I have lunch every week, and one of our frequent conversations is whether dad would have been a Trump fan or not. We both fear he would, we both fear that he would have eventually become one, but we're not sure. So I was very much, I was not immersed in, in I, was, I wasn't reading National Review, for example, or the Weekly Standard or anything like that. And then I, uh, I, I went to college and I became a political science major only because it was the only way I could graduate. And I'm not <laughs> joking. I was a history. Well, I started off as an education major, 
like to teach. But it was sort of too, I don't know, squishy, progressive for me. You know how it is. And so I switched to history, but I um, I couldn't, even though I, I love I, I love Spanish and I love trying to learn Spanish, I kept failing Spanish. And the only <laughs> and the only way I could, but but I was dating a girl at the time who figured out because she was good at you know I didn't know anything about the bureaucracy. She figured out that if I became a political science major for some reason, don't ask me why, <laughs> I would not need a foreign language. Oh wow! So I became a political science major, and really just excelled. And those classes without really trying, but I never volunteered on a campaign. I never interned anywhere. I never did any extracurricular activity, nothing, zero. And I graduated and the only job I could get was working at a Roy Rogers fast food restaurant. <laughs> By the way, I was a manager and I don't want to knock them. They were great and I still like their food, but it wasn't probably what I hoped for when I went to college. Uh, with these grand ambitions, you know, being a rock star or something. Yeah. But I started working on a campaign uh, for a guy running for state Senate. And he said, if you want to be my manager, you have to go to this place called the Leadership Institute. Oh, okay. Um, they'll teach you how to do it right. So I went there. I ended up, we won the race. I ended up interning at the Leadership Institute. And I ended up working there for four years. And during that time, primarily what I was focused on was uh, teaching people how to win elections and how to run campaigns. But Morton Blackwell, who runs the Leadership Institute, is also very interested in making sure that people have a sound philosophical grounding. And so he has, for example, this, uh, this booklet he wrote called Read to Lead. And when you're an intern there, you basically read all the books. And at the end of the internship, he gives you like 250 bucks back then, it's probably more now, and you could go to Amazon and order any book that you wanted, as long as it was somehow in the world of, of politics. Uh, and you would get all of these classic books from like the conservative can you know, canon, like Russell Kirk, Richard Weaver, William F. Buckley, things like that. And that's what opened the door to me starting to learn about conservative philosophy. And the irony is that all the things that I was starting to learn and develop like a coherent belief system, all of those things ironically backfired because when Donald Trump came along, they were all out, like, oh, they actually hurt me in terms of getting ahead in the conservative movement, at least. Oh, having a having a strong foundation in conservative philosophy was only a negative in the Trump era yeah. uh, in terms of, of being a part of that movement. Yeah, again, like you, the book is really worth reading. I, I, I'm not just saying this because you're on, but I, I really, there are so many things that you touched on. We didn't even get into uh, too much of the the Christian parts of it and and the dumbification of of the conservative movement and the dumbification of evangelicalism. There's so much more to talk about, but I guess I guess that means we have to talk again. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 Mark Knoll was one of uh, I mentioned earlier that I really looked at like maybe four or five books that a lot of people had maybe forgotten or hadn't read and I and I brought them back and and one of the books that that really helped me with Too Dumb to Fail was Mark Knoll's book about the scandal of the evangelical mind yeah and um there's some Richard Hofstadter in there there was some Rod Dreher in there 
there was some uh, amusing ourselves to death. There were like maybe five books that really I was, as I'm writing Too Dumb to Fail, these books were really uh, helping, helping inform me. Um, but the but the scandal of the evangelical mind was definitely one of them. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I have to reckon through a lot of that because I came to be a Christian late later in life, uh, 29 years old, after much thought and philosophical grappling and theological grappling, and I, I had to start grappling with my theological convictions pretty early on because some of the discrepancies that I saw in who we were as a people, like in praxis versus what I was reading in scripture. So that those questions started becoming prominent in my own thoughts and formation as a Christian. It's only been heightened over these last five or six years. But again, that's that's for another conversation. So before before we wrap up, you get to ask me a question or two. Oh, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna take it down a little bit. Okay. From from the intellectual heights uh, and get some really practical advice. So I haven't I haven't had a proper haircut since COVID. And um, it's interesting how much feedback I get from people who hate it, who hate <laughs> the way it looks. But I noticed you have some long locks as well, and I'm yeah. wondering if you have any advice on on. Uh, whether it's dealing with the haters or whether it's just the care and maintenance, you know, what kind of conditioner a person ought to use at this point? Because I've never, I never, even though I played in rock bands, like my hair was never this, it's never been this long in my life. So I'm breaking new ground here. So I grew it this long once before I was in my early to mid twenties when I first moved out to California. But at that time I couldn't afford conditioner. I could afford like the, the combo uh, shampoo and conditioner yes, in one. Pert. Yeah, pert. Pert there you go. I don't, I don't know what it, what is, what is the, co what's the combination? I have no idea. I, I don't remember. Know. But my hair was all kinds of scraggly. It didn't, uh, it, the only reason I grew it out is because I have this like frizzy, frizzy hair that just kind of grows out. So I grew it long so that I could tie it back like I'm doing right yeah. now. So, but now we can that, afford. That's kind of the state I'm in. <laughs> I know you have to. So you're you're still kind of at the end of what I call like the junior high school phase. It's like just weird and hasn't figured itself out yet. So you'll get past it though. You'll you'll get into <laughs> high school and start becoming cool again. <laughs> but here's yeah, a couple it's of not secrets. quite. It's not quite long enough that I can really, quite you know, yeah, completely do the man do the man bun. <laughs> no, no, no. But no, at I this never... point, you know, the the more negative feedback I get. It's, you know, remember when Trump, I will say this about Trump, he's funny. And you remember like people would criticize Trump and he'd be like, the wall just got higher. Yeah, yeah. And someone say something bad, he's like, the wall just got six inches taller. Yeah. That's how I am. It's like every time I hear negative feedback, I'm like, the hair just got another inch longer. <laughs> yeah, it's that, that's kind of my mindset about it. It's like the length of my hair doesn't submit itself to a democratic process. <laughs> yeah. You know, like Well, the other thing too is, Here's, I think this is a lesson that's very important for people to understand. You know, I will not take advice. I will not take criticism from someone unless I admire, like, if you're someone who's like a style icon to me, like, yeah. and you tell me it looks bad, okay, then I will believe you. But if, if you're not, then I, you know, and, and so in other words, instead of just accepting negative feedback, and, and letting it hurt you or, or make you decide to change, uh, consider is the per like, do you want to look like the person who's giving you this advice? Like, do you trust their, are they the style 
guru that you want to trust? Right, right. Yeah. So for me, the key is if I think uh, it's going to be a turn on for my wife, then she can say whatever she wants. Yes. And, and that has a lot of sway. If my wife didn't like my hair, it would have been, well, it, it wouldn't have been this long. It would be cut in an instant. Exactly. I, exactly. I would be Samson to her Delilah. <laughs> so, but I will say this. So a couple things. One is, believe it or not, don't wash it every day because uh, oh, yeah. it, it tends to dry out your hair. But I do think mixing it up, if you have a couple different shampoos and conditioners, uh, that helps. And then uh, every once in a while, I'll do the shampoo, but then we have this um, coconut oil. So I'll just like, instead of doing uh, conditioner, I'll come out of the shower, dry my hair and put some, uh... <laughs> I can't believe we're talking about this. It gives it some, uh, <laughs> yeah, some moisture. Yeah, yeah, you have to moisturize yeah. your hair. So that that definitely like helps, that. so. <laughs> I'll, you're listening to Hair Talk. Yeah. Listen, <laughs> listen to the Hair Talk, 103.2. There you go. Uh, no, this is helpful. Okay, this good. This is helpful. Um, there aren't a lot of people I could turn to at this point for <laughs> advice, so. So glad I could help. <laughs> All right, if there are no other questions about my grooming habits, <laughs> uh, if you could let us know how we could find you online, your writing, your awesome podcast, Matt Lewis in the News, how can we find you? Yeah, well, and first, let me just thank you for having me. And I have to say, because I write three times a week, not everything I write is great. But I am really proud of the book, Too Dumb to Fail. Yeah. And it's really held up. Like sometimes you'll write something, you'll think it's good, and then you'll look at it like a year later and you're like, no, that sucks. But the book I'm really proud of. And so thank you for reading it and spending time talking about it. And I hope people will get it. But you can read me at The Daily Beast and uh, follow me at Matt K. Lewis on Twitter. And then you mentioned my podcast. That's really a labor of love. That's the really fun thing that I do is interviewing and talking to people like you. And uh, it's called Matt Lewis and the News. Check that out. Yeah, yeah. There's really, uh, aside from yours truly, there's really a lineup of great guests and you get into these awesome conversations. So I've I've become a, a bit of a student of yours, just studying how you engage with folks and the substantive conversations that you, you get into. It's really it's really, it's entertaining, but it's also edifying. So I give you a lot of props there. Thank you. I love doing it. And I have no idea how I do it. Like in terms of, um, if there's a method to my interviewing, I do not know what it is. Like it, there is no thought through process. I hope it's good. No, it's, it's great. You do intuitively, <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, it takes me like hours and hours of, of research and reading and preparation and listening to podcasts to get ready for one conversation. And then my, it must be like an OCD thing that's, that's clicking in me because then I'll do the editing and all, I, I can't get through editing. You know, it's usually at least if there's an hour of conversation, it's at least three to five hours of editing for me. Yeah. So I have to figure out how to economize my time, both in preparation as well as post. But I, if I have the time to do a, a good one, then then it's I never I have yet to regret the amount of prep that I do because it's always something that's that's worth learning. So many of these conversations with you, with um, Bill Crystal, with Ron Steslo, with people who are part of the Trump administration, Elizabeth Newman and uh, Dave LePan and just so many people are so interesting to learn about. Yeah. So it's been it's been great. Okay, so I definitely I have I have like this list of things that I I need to ask you about uh, in in future conversations. So we'll, we'll save that. Let's do it. 
Yeah, yeah. And as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts. And most importantly, tell a friend about us. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect. And have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you're interested in following us, there are a number of ways you can do that. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.podbean.com. That's politicsandreligion.podbean.com. And we're on all the socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at TPNRPod. Again, at TPANDRPod, at TPNRPod. And in the coming weeks, we'll be launching a membership program with all kinds of exciting extras for those who join our community. But mostly, we just really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for all of us here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for visiting with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Got